0: This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we begin with an update from Alan Minsky on the state of play in passing the Build Back Better Reconciliation and Infrastructure Bills. The progressives are using their leverage because the bill is connected to the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill the centrist favor but want to whittle down to tout as their accomplishment. Media coverage has mischaracterized this as a split in the Democratic Party rather than as the LA Times did on Saturday, getting it right. There are two holdouts while the rest of the Dems are behind Biden's agenda. It's all riveting and we get Alan's analysis of what lies underneath which players have more weight, the tactics employed, and what he sees as the possible outcome. We then spend the rest of the hour with our own Melissa Figueroa, lead author on the new dispatch from pandemic research for the people called To Live and Die in Los Angeles, COVID-19, Structural Stress, and the Path to a More Resilient Public Health. The dispatch identifies the ways COVID merged with and reinforced Existing crises generated by a neoliberalized economy with labor precarity, house instability, homelessness, psychosocial stress, lack of health care and social safety net access, all contributing to the tenacity of the pandemic and pointing to the social vulnerability to future pandemics and natural disasters. It's a comprehensive analysis focusing on what L.A. County has done right and what more has to be done. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. and very pleased to have Alan Minsky back with us. He was just with us a week ago, but there's so much that is ongoing that I decided that we need to not finish but continue the conversation. Alan is the executive director of PDA, which is the Progressive Democrats of America, and a longtime political essayist and journalist, and you can read Alan's stuff everywhere. But what we're really trying to do today is to get an update on the state of play in passing the Build Back Better Reconciliation and Infrastructure Bills. That's like the BBB. This time, as opposed to in other Democratic administrations that are trying to do big legislation, the progressives are using their leverage. Because the Build Back Better bill is connected to this so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill that the centrists want to tout as their main accomplishment. In reading about this over the week since we last spoke, I was struck by just how particularly bad the media coverage has been. They are mostly doing their balancing act and mischaracterizing as a split within the Democratic Party, What, in fact, is a few holdouts from the rest who support the bill. And Saturday, the L.A. Times got it right. There are just two holdouts, while the rest of the Democrats, with a few minor exceptions, are behind Biden's bill. So we're going to get Alan's analysis of the tactics employed, what he sees as the possible outcome. and So, Alan, welcome back to Jacobin Radio. Great to be here. I'm really pleased because a lot happened and what looked like was going to be a vote on Thursday is not a vote. And we know a couple of things, which I want you to, of course, explain that Nancy Pelosi will not bring this to a vote until she knows the votes are there and that the White House is actively involved in trying to get this bill passed. The media coverage, as I started to say, shows this wrangling over the budget bill And it imagines that there is this balanced fight between the tight-fisted centrists and the free-spending progressives. But in fact, they're not so much balanced. It's really much more lopsided. So I guess I'd like to start with you to just give us where you think this is and perhaps, you know, your own comments on what the coverage has been like.
1: Well, it's complicated. I think the question, and by the way, I had an exchange with a, pretty prominent, moderate congressperson from in the Northwest, I I don't think I should say which congressperson, who made exactly the case that you made. It's not the moderates who are at war with the progressives here. It's a few holdouts. And I pushed back a little bit on that. I think, first of all, it's very clear that the progressives organized very well through the Congressional Progressive Caucus are making a very strong stand, between Bernie Sanders and the members of the House, they're quite outspoken about what they want to see happen and what they don't want to see happen. And I'd have to say that's not so pronounced among moderates. Now, you know, is this a matter of them sort of hedging between their uh, the fact that these are very, very popular measures with the general public and their relationships to Basically, the the funding that the moderate wing, the neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party has received from so much of corporate America and the wealthy, basically, since the era of Bill Clinton's presidency. And of course, as you can guess, I'm sort of waiting my answer to suggest that, yeah, there is that kind of hedging going on. I want to point to something that's really pronounced here and really is right at the center stage of where these things meet. And that is the issue around whether Medicare will be allowed to negotiate drug prices. It's a pretty complicated matter, and it's also very simple. It's very simple on the level of uh, the American public pays on average something along the lines of 2.5 times as much for the same drugs as people in the other advanced industrial countries. Even that is deceptive. There are certain drugs where, and some very essential drugs, insulin, which of course is a requirement for people with diabetes to remain alive is a very clear example where it's now much more than just 2.5 times as high. In fact, I I wonder if now the 2.5 times is an old number and that ratio is even greater. At any rate, basically the profits that you see for the pharmaceutical companies drawn off of the American public are outrageous. And when this kind of fact exists, that we're simply paying tons more than the people in Canada, in Western Europe, in East Asia, and around the world. How any politician can continue to support that is pretty outrageous. And indeed, Harvard and Politico did a poll this week. The single most popular public policy position that's currently on the table in front of the American people is to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices to bring them down, to save tens and tens of millions of dollars for individual Americans, and tens and tens of millions of dollars for the federal government because they'll be paying lower prices through the largest single purchaser, Medicare. In fact, that will save so much money for the federal government over the next 10 years that that 3.5 trillion dollar price tag, that's the 0.5. It's only 3 trillion dollars that has to be raised elsewhere. Half a trillion dollars will be saved just from this program. So it is a win-win. And yet the Republican Party it's true the moderates make this point who will who support what we support on this and they push back against the idea that the moderates aren't with us. They're correct. The Republican party universally stands with the pharmaceutical companies, but there are enough Democrats to not allow it to go through smoothly. What apparently has been going on behind the scenes is pretty nauseating. Mm -hmm. Okay. According to an article that was published by Politico just a few days ago, since we're in this position of this holding pattern, That amount of money that will be allowed to be negotiated, the amount of drugs will be allowed to be negotiated through this process. It's being debated whether it will be enough that it will rise to that half a billion dollars or more over the next decade, or it'll be many fewer drugs that are available. There's still even the possibility the whole program will go away. Now, here's the thing where does it start to get complex comes into this this one fact. So Everybody should process this next fact because it's a huge (laughs) fact of American politics. Okay, when you look at the right wing takeover of the American courts, abortion rights, gun control. Yes, they're very important issues to significant segments of the Republican base. Those issues in the Republican position and therefore the right wing jurists position on those issues are very important for the election of Republicans to office. So they compete with the Democratic Party and they can achieve the rightward shift of the courts. Is that really what's motivating the Koch brothers and all the people who fund organizations like the Federalist Society to achieve the right-wing turn on the courts? And I think you really scratch the surface of this issue and talk to any insiders, and they'll let you know what that all has been done for has been primarily around things that are called administrative law and the type of law that will block public programs, social democratic measures that would interfere with the quote-unquote rights of corporations. Okay, so the issue of Medicare being allowed to negotiate drug prices has been fought in the courts. So even if we get to this, there could be that battle.
0: Just to clarify on that, Alan, that they've already decided in favor of whether or not it's possible to negotiate.
1: Well, a lot of this stuff hinges on Congress taking a step. By the way, this is very important as it comes in with, say, partisan gerrymandering. Recently, the state of Pennsylvania had its gerrymandered districts reorganized to the benefit of the Democratic Party in advance of, I think, one of the recent election cycles. Democrats gained seats because the courts ruled the gerrymandering was illegal, but not because they were partisan. The courts were very clear that is still legal. But if Congress writes a law in the right way, and in this case, the courts basically wrote it out for them, You can have partisan gerrymandering be made illegal by an act of Congress. After all, Congress makes the laws of the land. It's only when it contradicts other elements of our constitution that the courts come in and say a congressional law is not applicable because of this precedent, et cetera, or this element of the constitution. So, in the case of pharmaceutical drug pricing, yes, the goal here is to write this in a way that will not be challenged by the courts, because such challenges have already been sort of laid out as an oppositional point. So It does look like this can get established. As such, yes, even if it's a whittled down small program, is this something of a victory? Yes. But now we start getting into politics. As I said, this has many dimensions. Let's say they achieve that, and they get only something that would save the country, the government, $100 billion, as opposed to $500 billion, so one-fifth the size. But it's established. That's a good thing. But is that going to win any votes in the midterm election? If it's one-fifth the program, people to win this election, this upcoming midterms where the Democrats are considered behind the eight ball in so many ways, very difficult for an incumbent party to hold on to the House, three-seat majority, all the issues around Republicans and their shenanigans around elections, too. The idea of Capitol Hill for the Democrats is a big, bold, build-back-better program on the order of something that saves Americans money very clearly and the failure to do something they've campaigned on for Mm. so long, and then they really can only do a meh example of it? Well, guess what? That is an electoral losing hand, and with a Republican Congress, certainly the program won't get strengthened, and you can imagine they'll do what they can to try to whittle it down. Now, Biden will have veto power. They won't have a veto-proof majority, but it sets the table for the Democrats being unable to achieve What they supposedly stand for achieving, because they have run on this issue over and over and over again. And if they fail to do it, once you get to a Republican president with control of the Congress, you can see it evaporating again. So, yes, they need to do this. Yes, it'll be a significant sort of gain if it's a meh proposal. They really need to do it, and they really need to do it forcefully. They have any hope of continuing to pursue this kind of progressive policy through Congress, through a Democratic presidency. And of course, combating climate change.
0: I want to come in on that because before we get to the 2022 midterms, Mm -hmm. there is this notion that if the Democrats are able to actually deliver something that people will feel right away and not do it like they did Obamacare with, you know, parts of it not rolling in for four more years in order to save money, you know, on some sort of mythical budget that they had, which turned out to be a big mistake because that meant that they had four years where they could say Obamacare didn't work. Nonetheless, once these things are in practice, once you get a family benefit, increased access to medical health care, however it gets done, climate change legislation, all kinds of protections for workers and families that we've mentioned. The Democrats count on that to be able to campaign. Look, we did this. And if the Republicans come in, they'll try to undo it. But then there's others who say that's not the way Americans vote. And, you know, part of that is that the progressives are actually playing this hand right this time. if mm-hmm. have 96 yeah. members of the Progressive Caucus. Mm-hmm. They are standing firm because, you know, 96 or I don't know how many more actually support what they're doing is a lot more than the so-called centrist holdouts who are, are trying to, first of all not do the build back better and only do the infrastructure bill because they know they can whittle that down. You know, I think this is where Pelosi and the progressives have done this right. They're basically saying, okay, we're going to vote on the reconciliation bill first and then we can do the infrastructure bill. So I wanted to hear what you thought about that. It just seems like that is so much smarter and that progressives have been organizing on this. You're part of that, Alan Minsky, as head of PDA, but also other organizations that have cropped up since the last time the Republicans were in power and are really working at the grassroots level. And and the American Prospect, the Daily Poster and the Intercept did a whip count and they found that there's enough progressives who are going to vote no if they don't really do these progressive things. And Nancy Pelosi has to take that into consideration. And she herself is identifying as a progressive now, whether she is or she isn't. And then, you know, there's all this talk about a mansion and cinema and all the rest. But we'll get to that. Go ahead, Alan. Let's see how yeah, you um, think um, about uh, stuff.
1: You know, Grover Norquist is still alive, but he's so um, <laughs> frightening. I'd like to say that the ghost of Grover Norquist is doing us all a favor here. The Republican Party probably could have whipped a lot of votes in the House to defeat the progressives and force the bipartisan infrastructure bill to pass, but they didn't because none of the House Republicans want to do, as Grover Norquist has told them never to do, never vote for a tax increase of any variety. More than anything, though, the perception of infighting between the moderates and progressives has actually had by chance, a favorable result in this sense, because the Republicans looked out and saw that they didn't really have to vote for this. Therefore, you know, having the hardcore Grover Norquist heads never vote for a tax increase, people be mad at them because the Democrats were going to destroy themselves without them having to do that. And at least it looks like this has bought us some time. The Republicans are pretty dug in on the idea that they're not going to help out the mansions and cinemas by passing the bipartisan for, bi- for structure bill out of the House. Because, as much as the Congressional Progressive Caucus is large, you know, 96 members, well, there are more than that Republican members of the House, so they can get it through. So, that's a good sort of a serendipitous positive thing that's happening in Congress. So, it's not going to go forward. Pelosi's not going to put it on the floor till she has the votes. But then it remains very important that these things are, are tied, and it's understood that the two bills will be tied. And now the progressives are feeling their hand is so strong. They're adamant and making sure, 100% sure that that is the case. And that's great. So where we sit right now to keep these two things tied together. Having said all of that, Susie, (laughs) word out of Friday's closed door meetings is that because of Mansion and Cinema, the size of this bill is still looking like it's going to get pared down. Pharmaceutical drug prices could be part of what's going to make it smaller. OK, but other things are going to be taken down. And the first demands of Mansion seem to be particularly focused around Fossil fuels. Fossil
0: fuels. And it's very heavy on this stuff in the infrastructure.
1: And it's rough to look at. It's rough. It's nauseating. At the very end of my last volley, I mentioned climate change. It might have seemed like a gratuitous addition at the end of what I was saying. Not at all. Well, and then, of course, the reason I brought it up in the way that I did is this is something we simply can't lose any time over. And I know, yes, the United States is tied to the rest of the world, but the United States in this leadership role in combating climate change can have very, very positive effects. It we, as a Democratic polity, have to insist that that happens. Insist, 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 insist. And ultimately, that element of the Democratic Party that coddles the fossil fuel industry has to go to hell right now and get the <laughs> hell out of the party as far as I'm concerned. Before
0: you go another step further, Alan, I think we need to just state, if anybody's missed it, that Manchin really is beholden to fossil fuels. He has his own coal company. He comes from country that is coal, even if those jobs, you know, are not what they used to be. And even in his own district, people think he's betraying his party. I heard a very interesting interview from people in his hometown. Well, he he should be
1: using his leverage. He can do what's right by the planet. Now, he's never going to do this, but he could. He could in his position. He could sit there and say, I'm King Cole. You want to have me vote for this? All of these things. They're going to be centered in West Virginia. You're going to have a brand new, say, high-speed rail, national network coordinating station, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. Put it in West Virginia, right? And all these jobs. Yeah, Yeah, all these things. There's ways to achieve that. Okay. I, however, want to go to, as I said earlier, and I hinted earlier, there's even a bigger picture I want to point to, because here's the thing, Susie, when you get right down to why this isn't winning, why we aren't winning this, even with pharmaceutical drug prices, 90% of the entire population supports it. Again, the most single most popular public policy. Even Republicans. Right, even Republicans. How is it that we're not winning it? I look at it this way. For the past two election cycles, and I've said this in many places, there emerged with clarity that there no longer were two political parties only. And you can cut and slice and dice the American political system in many ways, but it was clear as day that there were three major political tendencies in the presidential races that occurred. The Bernie Sanders progressives were new on the stage of history as a competitive force. And then you had the Trumpian right. And in between the two, because the Trumpian right now included challenges to the global trade regime, for instance, of the neoliberal order. So you had them, you had Sanders, and in between, you had what had actually been between the two parties, at least on the level of economics and, of course, mainly in foreign policy, a consensus, a neoliberal consensus, running from the Romney wing of the Republican Party through the moderates in the Democratic Party. Okay, hear me out here, Susie. If you were to have, in this historical moment, the three political tendencies— without anybody understanding who holds power currently, lay out their vision for America to the American public, in my opinion, not only would the progressives take first, the Trumpians would take second. Tragic that there's that much of that kind of white supremacist hellish crap in our society, but that's the case. And the neoliberals would do terrible. right? I mean, what they now represent for decades on, everybody knows what it is, all the money going up to the upper, all the public services collapsing, the society seems lost at best, and decline more clearly. So they would lose. Okay, why is that not happening? You have to ask, and I'm not sitting here advocating for dogmatic Marxism, but the phraseology is going to be (laughs) familiar to people who, you know, have ever encountered any Marxist theory. The question, if you ask, is this, who owns the means of production between these three competitive political forces? 95% of it is owned by that middle block. You know, in many respects, historically, politically, the minute I say that, and if that sort of light goes on in your head and it's like, oh, yeah, that's right, that financialized capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, the structures of our society to facilitate that type of capitalism own all the essential services in our society. They operate them. Okay, once you say that, it's almost like game up. When does that kind of economic control and power ever lose, especially in the democratic West? I mean, you do see situations coming out of World War II, social democracies get established, and it goes from there. It's a different context. As much as we're in a crisis now, it's not on the order of what World War II did to countries around the world. So how do you overcome that? And that's playing out these weeks inside the Democratic Party. That party has wedded itself, has constructed itself to be in a symbiotic relationship with those structures of neoliberal capitalism, okay? And how much of a break can they make? Here's the thing, look at the details of what's in the reconciliation bill. Does universal pre-K and child care, facilitated by state spending, how much does that cut against the logic of any particular wing and branch, strengthened wing and branch of neoliberal capitalism? And compared to renegotiating pharmaceutical drug prices, compared to going against the fossil fuel industry, it's not as great of a direct combat. So you probably can go through on a checklist and ask that question. The owners of the means of production, the neoliberal, and this is not to argue for you know dogmatic Marxism. If social democracy is what's achieved here, that's Rooseveltism, that's the Labour Party in the UK, the German SDP, all of Western Europe, really, right? So what goes against who currently owns this particular segment of American society. And I bet you at the end of this week, the end of two weeks, sadly, predictably, the places where this is going to be proposed to be carved down, don't get me wrong, we progressives, we're going to stand against the way it's going to shrink. We're going to raise our voices like hell, say, hell no way should the American people pay more money for pharmaceutical drug prices. I don't want to see any more of these rotten advertisements on the evening news where every advertisement is for a pharmaceutical drug. They're nauseating commercials to begin with, you know? But you know, that's just a joke. You know, That's overhead. It's not necessary. They don't, they don't fund their research. We already fund their research. No, drug prices should be fully negotiated. And then on fossil fuel, the subsidies, the maintenance of them, and then cutting out all the things that really will build up renewable energies and preserving things that will build up things that are really in harmony with the fossil fuel industry's logic is for its maintenance, like carbon capture and sequestration projects, and GM um, engineering, those, yeah, you're right. And those things, then, then hell no, hell no, hell no. But again, think about that. Where are the powerful and the owners of capital being challenged by the elements of this bill? And there's very likely that's where we're going to see the pushbacks as to where these things get diminished and we will be fighting against them.
0: So Alan there's just just as a recap and something that you said that's incredibly important because it's true that what is being challenged here is quite large and on the other hand these are the same kinds of public programs social programs welfare programs that are affordable and that can be done and have been done. And the U.S. is the sort of outlier in this respect around the world. So it looks like what we're seeing, and you just said it quite succinctly, is this long-discussed realignment in which geographical economic areas that should be Republican or should be Democrat are no longer that way or are just not that way. And it seems that if the reason, as you say, that the progressives are holding on tough And they are so far winning in this negotiations, it's because they are the Democratic Party right now, except for this small sliver, who, as you say, are also the captains of finance and industry. So the other thing that we should notice is that this is the first time since Roosevelt and perhaps Kennedy and Johnson, I should say, but that we've had the president on the side of the progressives here and that this is a huge, huge advantage and that, even though Biden ran as a moderate, essentially the entire primary field, yet you know, with very few exceptions, were progressives, even some of the you know so called independent types so whatever the other reason you could come up with, Biden understands this and is with the progressives on this mm. so as we talk about this, you know it's really tempting. We've already seen that Trumpism has left most of the old-style Republicans behind. And so here we're seeing a process where perhaps the centrist Democrats are being left behind. And I just want to finish with this, the Manchin Cinema holdouts. It's being roundly shown that Manchin is a part of the fossil fuel industry, and I've read somewhere that he's just being mentioned, that he always holds out. But at the end, he comes around to what the Democrats ask for. Sinema is an entirely different thing because she's an utter opportunist and she's utterly corrupt. She basically is trying to represent both pharma and her ultra rich, you know, circle of people who just don't want to pay any more taxes and uh, who just don't want any change at all. So now, like, given that there's a possibility of exposing all of that, I think what this raises, Alan, I'd like you to go out with this, is this notion that the vast majority of the population supports what's in this bill. The smart thing to do is to hold on and make them vote on the reconciliation bill first and then see what they come up with on the infrastructure bill. And here's the final thing. Are these reforms that we know exist in other advanced Western capitalist countries. Are they compatible with capitalism as it exists in the United States and even yeah. more important, democracy? Yeah, even, yeah, seen right. by but, the Republicans is that they know they can't win unless they cheat.
1: Well, you know, one thing we should always ask those the questions you asked at the end there. The compatibility of this with American democracy and uh, capitalism in America, of course, is one very explicit. There's a few. One very, very explicit governmental expenditure that, you know, it does fuel segments of the economy, of course, but costs a ton that those other countries don't have to deal with. In fact, we basically pay for it for them, which is the military. This is way too simplistic, but on some level, you know, Germany and Japan, post-World War II, their economies grew and they became stable, very prosperous, middle-class societies. Well, they have what for military expenditure compared to the United States over these last 75 years. Okay. So there's that. I do want to wrap up here. There's so many things that you pointed to, but I just want to say this about cinema versus mansion. Yes. That's somewhat true. And we can see the horse trading with mansion and we can see sort of the logic of his actions around that. Now, still some of it is illogical. They, both of them, especially mansion, actually keep blurting out that this is fiscally irresponsible, which is just wrong. Everything. (laughs) Right. But with cinema, you know, what is her gambit obviously is a, professional public politician. She has moved from the left to the right quite rapidly and has aligned herself with a very sort of chamber of commerce type of logic and big money allies. As I just said, if you keep your head down and you do that, you have a lot of history on your side (laughs) when so much of the wealth and power is controlled by that branch of American society. Her mistake, it might be a fatal mistake for her politically and she got very exposed publicly for this and so she's now really 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 unpopular i think even more unpopular right now than mansion is though that's just a rough guesstimate of things and particularly unpopular right now with the democratic party in arizona which by an 80% vote of their sizable central committee basically there'll be a statement of no confidence once she doesn't support the 3.5 trillion or doesn't support a filibuster to so that we can pass voting rights she's sort of overplayed her hand in that respect but again If you as a politician were to align yourself over recent decades with where wealth and finance capital power is in the society, would that be a wise move if your primary motive is to advance politically? Yes, of course it would be. And I think that's what's been happening. People are mystified by her, but I would just point out I don't think it's that mysterious if what she's all about and what she seems to be about, at least to a great extent, is her own political trajectory. But it looks like she overplayed her hand, so it at least seems to be a very good thing there. You know, I hope the framework I provided is a helpful way of looking at things. It doesn't mean that that block in the middle is going to win. They have a very weak hand with the public right now, tremendous dissatisfaction with the general trajectory of American society over the last four decades, but it will be a battle. The left in the United States, a real left, does not have a very good one-loss record to say the least in our political history. We want to see that change, but we have to understand the playing field that we're on in all of its dimensions. There's a lot of dimensions to this. It's a very dynamic moment right now. Let's win this thing right now. Everybody should be calling their Congress people, calling their senators. Even if you have the most progressive Congress person, tell them to speak out. This is a huge moment and a huge opportunity to have a victory for the left. I mean, even I know it's qualified. There's so much in here that we wish was much, 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 much stronger, but it's a real opportunity for a victory. So, historic
0: Susan, bill for historic moment, as we started out last week. Alan Minsky, thank you so much for that. And I should just say to the listeners, stay tuned because we will yet again revisit this. It's still ongoing. We don't know if it's going to be voted on now or in six weeks, as Biden says, or whatever it is, but we'll be definitely keeping track. Alan Minsky, executive director of PDA and a longtime political essayist and journalist. Thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio.
1: Thank you so much, as Larson.
0: This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have our own Melissa Figueroa with us in this segment. And this is really going to be a good one because Melissa is a lead author on a new dispatch to live and die in Los Angeles. That's not the whole title, but we're going to be talking for the rest of the hour about. COVID-19 and in particular COVID-19 in California, but how it intersected with all of these other issues that have been plaguing California. So just to begin with, before I introduce Melissa, who's no stranger to these airwaves, just in the two weeks since Governor Newsom defeated the recall ballot. He has put forward a slew of pro-labor bills that are really going to be pretty important if they stick and if they go through in the way that we want. And so there's a mixed picture. I'm calling it some good things and some bad things in California. California is the first state to mandate vaccination for schools K through 12. And this is particularly important for Los Angeles County because it had the highest case rate of COVID in the last month, and that's since school has begun, among the unvaccinated 12 through 17 age group and it is 19 percent worse than unvaccinated adults up to the age of 50 and 33 percent worse than unvaccinated older adults, according to Saturday's Los Angeles Time. So it is really timely that Melissa, our multi-talented producer, engineer and director and researcher, Melissa Figueroa, joins us. And as I mentioned, she is the lead author on the new dispatch from Pandemic Research for the People, and it's called To Live and Die in Los Angeles, COVID-19 Structural Stress and the Path to a More Resilient Public Health. So we've got a lot in there to talk about. And this dispatch identifies the ways that COVID merged with and reinforced existing crises generated by a neoliberalized economy. And this is a perfect segue to what I just talked about with Alan Minsky, and that economy is one that has labor precarity, housing instability, homelessness, psychosocial stress, lack of health care and safety, net access, all of which have contributed, as this report shows, to the tenacity of the pandemic and points to the social vulnerability of future pandemics and natural disasters. It's a really comprehensive analysis, and it focuses on what Los Angeles county has done right. And what more has to be done. So welcome, Melissa. Let me just introduce you properly. Melissa Figueroa is always thanked at the end of these shows, but she's a Ph.D. candidate in geography at UC Berkeley, focusing on indigenous knowledge systems, agroecology, and its lessons for sustainable development in the age of converging crises. She's a researcher and planner for the Chico Traditional Ecological Stewardship Program and the Intertribal Stewardship Workforce Initiative. She's also the Climate Emergency Environmental Justice Field Coordinator for Progressive Democrats of America, a faculty owner of the Cooperative New School for Urban Studies and Environmental Justice, and also a longtime political journalist, educator, and organizer involved in a wide range of movements for social and environmental justice. You can look for all of Melissa's articles in all of the right places. So with all of that, Melissa Figueroa, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thanks, Susie. It's good to be here in front of the mic. I'm really pleased to have that because I should also let the listeners know that you're not only in front of the mic, but you're also recording and will be editing this for broadcast. So this dispatch, and I should let listeners know, you're going to want to read it, all of it. And it's beautifully produced and full of pictures and graphs very well written and very easy to understand just leaving aside the science. It's all there. And you find it at wwwprepthepeopleallonewordnet forward slash dispatches. The dispatch is called to live and die in LA, COVID-19 structural stress and the path to more resilient public health. So What I wanted us to talk about and I know you want to talk about are the way that all of these various vectors that I mentioned in the introduction come together and point to, you know, literally the problems that underlie not just Los Angeles, but all of our society, which are the structural inequalities of race and class, especially. So let's begin with somewhat of an overview of what you're trying to do, and then let's talk about COVID and the, the intersection of all of these various social problems.
2: Great. Thanks, Susie. So the idea for this dispatch came together right as the pandemic was really raging in Los Angeles in December 2020 and January 2021. That was the time that Los Angeles was the global epicenter for COVID-19. And Los Angeles County was the first county in the nation to pass 1 million cases. And so we were looking at the news that was coming out of it. And I saw the maps of the case rates and the deaths. And it really broke my heart because growing up in Los Angeles, living in so many of its neighborhoods, you can see geographically just exactly where it was hitting and knowing the neighborhoods that it was hitting, knowing the people who live in the neighborhoods and having been part of that life. And then also understanding how race and class inequality has really shaped the geography of Los Angeles and how it was playing out in this really horrible way with COVID-19. And so we began to do a lot of research. Pandemic research for the people has a number of Brilliant scholars. We had two interns that were able to crunch a lot of numbers for us. And also, of course, our fearless leader, Rob Wallace, and his really in-depth knowledge of the epidemiology of the pandemic. And so as we were looking at it, we saw that statistic after statistic, just indicators of inequality, Race, housing vulnerability, renter vulnerability, access to services, all of these things really mapped almost exactly geographically on the numbers of case rates. And so we wanted to really look into why that was and really look at the structural factors that have made the pandemic rage in communities of color and lower income neighborhoods as much as they have.
0: That's very good, Melissa. And one of the things that was very obvious at the beginning, especially of this pandemic, was this whole discussion. And it was nationwide about who are essential workers and who gets to stay home. And, you know, later on, it became who has access to testing and who has access to then vaccination. All the while that we saw communities of color and working class neighborhoods devastated by the pandemic because of structural factors that you're about to outline. And if you look at the maps, which you guys provide in this dispatch to live and die in Los Angeles, one of the worst hit neighborhoods is Pacoima. And maybe I thought you should start there because Pacoima is kind of like it's a symbol of everything else.
2: Absolutely. And Pacoima is an interesting place that interacts a lot with my history of being in Los Angeles. I grew up in Burbank, which was the Lockheed plant. And what happened was Pacoima actually, because Burbank had a racial covenant, it was a sundown town and there were a lot of black and Latino workers that worked at Lockheed, but could not live in Burbank. And so Pacoima was a historically redlined community. It was historically the bedroom community for specifically of color who could not live in the sundown town that they worked in. And then afterwards, in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of influx of Filipino immigrants because of Kaiser Permanente, which is the hospital right there. So when I saw that Pacoima was actually one of the epicenters of the epicenter, it just brought home so much of that history, that racial discrimination and the labor, you know, and the labor dynamics of it. It really is a microcosm and an encapsulation of what goes on. But it's kind of routine now for everybody to come out of their mouth. Yes, of course, you know, inequality made COVID worse. But one of the things that is in this dispatch that I think is really important, it's not so well known, is that Actually, the structural factors of inequality, work precarity, housing precarity actually interacts with the body down to the molecule, the specific ways that COVID-19 affects the severity and also the mortality of COVID-19. So from what we know of the epidemiology of the disease, right, it's not the disease that actually kills you. It is your body's immune response, what's called the cytokine storm. Right. And cytokines are the chemicals in our body that respond to any kind of stress event, whether it is having a bear run. I mean, that's sort of evolutionary where it came from, right? Having a bear attack you in the woods or kind of something like that, you know, running from the cops, right, or experiencing discrimination and helps to regulate the body's response. And actually, one of the works that really helped bring this dispatch together in the way that it did and really tied it all together is this book by Rupa Maria and Raj Patel called Inflamed. And it looks at the pathways of inflammation and toxic stress that are caused by the structural factors of housing precarity, worker precarity, and racial discrimination. And what happens is that you are just stressed so much in your life that your body begins to dysregulate its immune response. And it is precisely that dysregulation, that dysfunction of the immune response tied to particular biomarkers, these cytokines, that actually make COVID-19 into a severe symptomatic or a deadly response. So this dispatch basically looks not just at what's on the surface that everybody knows, yes, inequality leads to greater outcomes, but also looking at how these effects of toxic stress that are especially in racially historically oppressed and marginalized populations carried through DNA intergenerationally, that actually have made our bodies and the bodies of workers and the bodies of black and brown people that much more vulnerable to a severe COVID response. And how basically to really tackle this pandemic, because the way that COVID-19 has spread so much right now, and people are saying, okay, we're going to have to live with it. Well, if we're going to have to live with it, then what we can tackle are these structural factors that lead to toxic stress,
0: so that's a really good overview, Melissa, and it takes us all the way to the end as well by bringing in the sort of stress factors and how that, as you call it, toxic stress, or as it comes from the Mariam and Patel book, shows you know how it can help ignite this cytokine storm, which is what they first discovered in the very, very beginning with hospitalized patients, that the autoimmune response to COVID was really what was killing people. And so they had to start to use medical techniques to tamp down the autoimmune response. And they've really come quite a long way on that. But on the other hand, now we have this other issue of anti-vaxxers and the vaccine resistant and the politicization of vaccination. But all of that is in the news. But there is this other issue. And to give credit in one sense, to what California has been dealing with, and that is this unbelievable housing crisis. And that is one where right now, during the pandemic, housing prices have surged, rental has surged. And at the same time, it was recognized that if you don't deal with homelessness, that the pandemic is only going to get worse. And so there were these programs like Project Room Keep, where homeless people have been put in hotel rooms, not nearly enough, not for long enough. There's been an eviction moratorium. And then there's also now the restructuring of permits so that they're trying to increase density so that in a bow to the climate crisis, that people don't have to drive so far to come to work, like you mentioned, so that they can live in communities. All of this takes a very long time and it comes up against capitalist realities and realtors and everything else. So I want you to address, because you've been a housing activist for a very long time, as well as a climate activist. And so how do these intersect? And you gave the case of Pacoima. You also mentioned Burbank. So in your dispatch to live and die in Los Angeles, it's a big topic about the way that housing insecurity, housing density, and the landlords and the eviction moratorium intersect.
2: Absolutely. So again, here we have a sort of natural disaster and a pandemic colliding with one of the biggest social disasters of our time, which is the housing crisis. And where I live now in Chico, California, I saw that happen With the campfire, when the whole town of Paradise burnt down, and now we have the highest per capita homeless rate in the nation, and 25% of them are fire survivors. What's happening in Los Angeles, which is also the epicenter of one of the hottest housing markets in the country, where you have a lot of the rental market has changed, you have private equity coming in, so that the markets don't cool off. When there's a lot of vacancy because they can just leave the apartments empty and keep it part of their portfolio or tear it down, improve it, flip it. You know, all of this stuff is going on. And even before the pandemic, right, you had so many people that were not able to afford housing that they were, quote unquote, doubling up.
0: Right. No, I say you and I talked about this post 2007 and eight with the housing bubble bursting, but then afterwards as well with the increasing homelessness and even the tiny homes and all of those things. So continue. and I'm
2: Absolutely. So you have people doubling up sometimes three or four families in one unit. You have people living with extended family members and friends, and you have much more of this You know, when the safety net falls out that's provided by the government, a lot of folks, especially communities of color, fall back on their communities and their neighborhoods and their families. And so when something like a pandemic hits and you have to self-isolate, much of that daily support structure is so dependent on your interaction with your community and your family and your household. I have a quote in there from Barbara Ferrer who is the director of public health in LA County, who kind of like blamed it on people having parties and, you know, people just-
0: Social practices, she said.
2: Yeah, yeah. Cultural social practices, kind of like this very veiled, basically nod to the cultures of communities of color. And we're trying to show that it's much more than that. It's not just people choosing to have parties. It's people whose daily existence really depends on the interdependence Of one's immediate circle. And of course, when those immediate circles are all dependent on essential work, work where, you know, 75% of jobs are impossible to do from home. And
0: then networks of
2: care. Yeah, absolutely. And all these service workers that must deal with the public and must be exposed on a daily basis, it really does kind of flip that narrative of like just people choosing to have parties and whatnot. And even with that, you know, it's like if you have people whose family members are dying, you know, the grief is communal, right? You know, you need community and grief. And the choices that people make, it's not that flick. It's much harder and it's much more vital than people who are outside that community really realize.
0: I really like that you brought that up because, you know, it's a way to kind of individualize responsibility as well for what's going on in the pandemic. And of course, these pandemics are not routine. They may well become that way. But it also is just this fallback that somehow you've got to have your single family home or apartment. And that if you live with three generations plus others, that's really awful. But, you know, that's the way the market works. And so I'm glad that you brought that up, that if there was childcare provided, if there was decent wages, if all of these other things and maybe the pandemic's impact might have been worse. It's not guaranteed at all because this is a rolling disaster. On the other hand, you know, there's a lot of things that LA has managed to do with this vaccination program that has begun to show some fruit. But before we get there, right now, as of like these last few days, the eviction moratorium extension has now expired. And what can you say about that? Are we any closer to dealing, not just, you know, nationally, but particularly in Los Angeles with this? homeless crisis that will probably get a lot worse given, you know, what's happening. Now, the eviction, we should probably say that even while nationally it expires in California, it's supposed to go on until the end of the year, right?
2: Yes. And that is, again, one of the interventions that can be made on a state and local level that can help to offset the sort of rising tide of let's just let this virus rip throughout the nation. But even with the eviction moratorium, even with the state rules, about that it doesn't stop landlords from putting excessive stress, excessive toxic stress on people who are housing insecure. So we had activists from the LA Tenants Union help to construct this piece. And they came with tons of horror stories of landlords raising rents, sometimes doubling rents, even though in a national emergency, the state has price gouging ordinances, but not many people know that, right? So so landlords are taking every single loophole they possibly can to try to force tenants out. So raising rents, not fixing things. So over two-thirds of low-income renters in Los Angeles have issues with their apartments that the landlords are not fixing, trying to kind of like pressure them out through like, you know, all of the rat and mold problems and also just evicting them anyway because they don't know about the eviction moratorium. 1,600 households in L.A. County alone, it is estimated, have already been evicted despite the eviction moratorium. And now over half, over half of L.A. residents have missed a payment or would be in danger of eviction if the eviction moratorium is lifted. This is a catastrophe, not just for housing, but also for COVID.
0: And I should just add to that, we need to get uh, move along, but I've noticed in the last couple of weeks that a lot of the tents in the freeway underpasses around where I live have been swept. And so there's this question too about, once again, back to the same old enforcement, and one cannot imagine that these homeless people have been swept away into apartments. That's probably not the case. But let's move on because we, we do have a time limit, Melissa Figueroa, and I want to just let the people know once again, you can read the entire display at www.prepthepeople.net forward slash dispatches. Melissa, we should move on because what we've been talking about at the outset of the program, I mentioned these new pro-labor bills that have been introduced by Governor Newsom that do address issues of precarity, work schedules, the nature of work, casualization, and all of the other things that in this dispatch you say COVID has reshaped. So maybe you could go there. So the other
2: big thing that we really looked into was how COVID-19 has been reshaping the nature of work. And in this, we kind of focused on two sectors. One is the gig economy or the growing gig economy, or shall we say the gig paradigm, right? because this is not just about Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, or all this stuff. What has happened in COVID because of this work from home thing is that actually many conventional companies are converting their own workers, their own employees to independent contractors and saying, well, this way you can work from home, you can do all of this stuff. Up to 36% of the entire workforce right now has been converted to sort of a gig style independent contracting and of course with independent contractors you do not have the same employee protections labor protections that you would have as an employee there's no even mechanism to unionize right there's no benefits or health benefits no unemployment all of this stuff that comes with self-employment also comes with a lot of drawbacks especially if you're working in a situation where you really shouldn't be an independent contractor But this has been the sort of trend that COVID-19 and that work from home mandate has accelerated to a great extent. The other sector that we really focused on is the food and agriculture sectors, and they are linked in many ways because in food and agriculture sectors, a lot of companies, whether it's an agricultural company with undocumented farm workers or a fast food company with low income and poor workers that are franchised, they have built a structure of insulation from labor lawsuits and other things through this mechanism of contracting, subcontracting, and in the fast food industry, franchising. And so the structures are kind of converging in ways that make workers all the more vulnerable, right? So a farm worker in the San Joaquin Valley that doesn't get PPE, that is forced to work long hours and is forced to have to go home at the end of the day with you know, no guarantee that they will have any protection if they get COVID, that situation is not so far from a Uber Lyft driver or an Amazon worker that has to face the same thing. You know, one of the things we talk about is not just what has happened to labor, but also how labor is fighting back. And this is what's so interesting, right? So not only do you have, you know, Uber Lyft strikes, you have multiple strikes at fast food restaurants, but you also have what I call an informal strike wave of just people refusing to work and not wanting to take the crap anymore. And, you know, you have all of these business owners now that are complaining about worker shortages. We see the pictures on the Internet of people posting their sob stories on the window. Like, why doesn't anybody want to work my crappy $3 an hour job anymore? (laughs) Well, you know, this is what's happening on a massive scale. and, And like one that we can't really measure. But it has exposed just how far this capital labor contract can really go to crush labor without a really, really big response.
0: And I should just say, Instacart workers are going to go on strike on the 18th of October. Right now, they're asking people to delete the app. But it's absolutely the case that what we're starting to see right now, thank you goodness is a wave of strikes that will be reminiscent to the red for ed that we saw in 2018 as education workers went on strike throughout the country and especially in red states. And I also want to say that thanks to the UTLA, the teachers union in Los Angeles standing firm, they held out until schools were made safer and that the vaccination mandate went through for the teachers, staff members and now for all students from age 12 to 19 so these are very very big what should we call these advances if not victories and hopefully more to come and i wanted you to to talk a little bit about that aspect we don't have tons of time but we thought that with the vaccinations and with California's having less vaccine resistance than elsewhere, and with the pandemic actually coming down, that things were on, you know, a good, we're doing better. And then, then we got Delta, the Delta variant, and so now we're seeing young people, as I quoted at the outset, dying and filling up hospitals once again. So I wanted to ask you a little bit in your dispatch. You do talk about the relative success of vaccine access equity, but. I wonder how this matches your map of inequity.
2: Yeah, so literally the one statistic that we looked at that did not map along these lines of race and class was vaccination. And that was really surprising finding for us. You know, again, our interns were really great at being able to gather this data and process it rather quickly. And so once we got that, we realized L.A. is one of the most vaccinated metropolitan areas in the country. And then when we look at the map of vaccinations, we can see how actually government intervention and decent policy can actually intervene and break this deadly pattern that we were seeing all throughout. And so, yes, L.A. took a good step in really working with community organizers, working with uh, nonprofit organizations to get vaccine access to the communities that need it most. And we do see that it is working to a large extent. And the other thing, however, is that vaccination is not a panacea for this issue. You know, a lot of people think vaccine hesitancy is like the Trump white supremacist people but people have to understand there is a lot of vaccine hesitancy in black and brown communities as well because of white supremacy, because of things like the Tuskegee experiment, because of the sterilization, forced sterilization, thousands of
0: Latina mothers and all kinds of stuff. And really also just work schedules for people. Sometimes who cannot get to the place to get the vaccine, even though now it's, it's far more widely available.
2: Yes. And I know L.A. has mobile vaccination clinics now, which has been a huge help. But again, the vaccinations is a step that shows what can be done. It is the first step. But to really beat this pandemic, if we are looking at toxic stress as kind of like the core of why COVID-19 becomes severe and deadly, the answer to beating the pandemic as well as understanding what social vulnerability is and how any disaster, whether it's a fire or an earthquake, a flood, or whatever does to people in different communities, being able to have structures in place to reduce stress, to reduce that toxic stress and to support communities when a crisis happens is really the big lesson that we're taking away here. COVID-19 will not be the last pandemic and it won't be the last disaster to hit LA or any place in the world really.
0: And so-, so I just wanted to ask you finally because you know we don't have oodles of time left but this is a good place to tie it up Melissa Figueroa and that is to talk about what you just began to say in terms of solution and hope. And you're hinting to it is not going to be possible to address all of these inequities and crises immediately. But there are models that you suggest, and I'd like you to just finally wrap up with those.
2: Absolutely. So I'm going to take another concept from Rupa Marian Raj Patel's wonderful book, Inflamed, that looks at the effects of toxic stress on the body and shows what really is the antidote to it. And they have this concept called community immunity, right? This is different from herd immunity. That's sort of a strictly biological function. But community immunity looks at the sources of stress and the structural sources of stress and looks at building communities of care, communities that are able to buffer each other in a crisis that can have models of interdependence that do not leave them vulnerable, like having adequate housing, like having meaningful work that is on a schedule and a structure that allows people to be able to take time off if they get sick or their families get sick. And also just radical ways of reimagining how we live in the places that we live that would make us more, not less resilient to disruptive shocks. I mean, we are in the age of disasters, we're in climate change, and we just have to kind of accept that disruptions are going to happen, especially over the next couple of generations. So how do we prepare for that? There's a lot of wonderful experiments and literature coming out, especially from the public health and trauma-informed social work communities. The Chickasaw Nation, actually, their COVID plan that included building tiny houses to isolate people who were sick and give them every support system they needed to be able to recuperate well. You know, they're a tribal government, so they were not restricted by all of these regulations and and things. And that's something that governments that have those restrictions can look at and see what we can do. Housing, absolutely number one key, right? Having adequate living space to be able to handle pandemics and then take away that stress of trying to make the rent every month or you're going to be thrown out in the street. For unsheltered communities, it is, again, providing adequate shelter and support services even amongst the unhoused. So one of the things that we looked at was the Echo Park encampment in Los Angeles that was swept a few months ago, but that during the shelter-in-place moratorium that Newsom had imposed actually helped homeless communities and tent cities stay in place and begin developing these interconnections and interdependencies that actually helped them as a community. Many residents of that unhoused community found it to be an oasis of safety and shelter that was taken away when the camp was swept. And so instead of looking at homeless camps in general as like these eyesores that need to go, we can look at some of the positive dynamics that did happen when they were able to have stability and really putting things in place that would ensure stability for people is really going to help us in the long term for anything, not just a pandemic, but for anything that comes our way in the future.
0: And I'm so glad you wrapped up with that, Melissa, because it takes us back, too, to some of the provisions in the Build Back Better bill. One of them, of course, is access to reliable and, and fast broadband, which is really critical to being able to be on the network, let's say, for the services that Hopefully, we're going to fight for and win to get established. Liza Figueroa, I want to thank you so much for writing this dispatch along with all of your co-authors. And it is called To Live and Die in Los Angeles, COVID-19 Structural Stress and the Path to a More Resilient Public Health. As I said, it's a comprehensive, beautifully written, buttressed with graphs and charts that really help you understand all of the various aspects of this intersection of pandemic, inequality, our economy, healthcare, and everything else. Thanks for doing that work, and thanks for joining us today. You can read it at www.prepthepeople.net forward slash dispatches. Melissa Figueroa is a geographer and in this age of converging crisis, and she really does write about the way that they all converge. And she's also a researcher for the Chico Traditional Ecological Stewardship Program, And a faculty owner of the Cooperative New School for Urban Studies and Environmental Justice, and a longtime political activist, journalist, and everything else. She's also the producer and director and engineer for this program. Melissa, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio.
2: Thank you, Susie.